Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Uh, Welcome, and if you're returning from vacation, it's great to have you back from vacation. If you went away on vacation and you flew southwest, uh, wherever you are in the world, hi on video, on a podcast thing. Yeah, wherever your luggage is, hi too. We're we're moving this from this season of of Christmas, this distinct and notable season that is that is full of busyness in lots of ways, and and now into what you might call winter proper. I I went for a a stroll this morning, and I got to see some of how you guys in Denver you do winter. Even though I'm I'm kind of getting to be an old hand with with Denver now, but I I went out and and I saw this. In Europe, this is called a glacier. Um, it's, it's in mountains, and we keep them there. And, uh, and, and I love just seeing some of the priorities with which we operate, because you've got a road where cars are expected to drive, and then you've got green space, which is all beautifully cleared, and there's a pathway, and you can ride your bike, and, and walk, and hike, and all those different things. And like, well, the road is usually clear, and we in the rest of the world leave that part just to be whatever it is, but no, no. We need the exercise, we've got to get outdoors. And so this was just a, a joy to, to go out and experience winter. There's these two distinct seasons. Christmas is, is busy, often anxiety-inducing. For many of us, we might say Christmas is a false multiplier. All the things that are in our minds, they, they compact and they land in that Christmas season. And so then maybe for you, if you feel that way, you move from Christmas into something like winter, and there's like a breath of like, oh, We've moved from one to the other. Uh, then for some, perhaps, it's the other way around. Uh, because Christmas is busy, but at least it's noise. At least it's something to do, some activities to be involved in. And now you move into what's called ordinary time, and, and it's just back maybe to the mundane. You, you go back to the, there's the same bills to pay. There's the same diapers to change. There's the same school runs, extracurricular activities to do. Everything's just same, same, same. And, and so however you feel about these two different seasons, life with its busyness, with its intensity, with all of the things it requires us to keep a focus on, it can be overwhelming. It's why we call this series Overwhelmed. My, my wife and I just had our fourth child, and it, it's been a joy to welcome Leo into the world, but I have this theory that you have to forget how difficult raising a baby is, because you'd never do it twice, right? If you, if you remembered, you need some kind of am, uh, was it amnesia, is that the word? Because, because otherwise you're like, oh wow, this is, this is so tough, and all consuming. It takes everything. So I gathered a few of the, the, the people I know that have older kids and, and lots of them. I'm like, tell me, tell me, reassure me, give me good words of how wonderful it's going to be when they're all gathered around the table one day and they're like, yeah, you're going you're to be fine. But, but it can be overwhelming. And I, I found this delightful reel the other day. There's the text message that goes out from, from the lady pretending to be a teenager. Mom, can you pick me up from this sleepover? The kids are mean and the dad is annoying. And the reply is, that's your husband and kids. It's like, you, you can't get away. Like, it's just, it's part of life now. There's, there's this busyness to life and all sorts of areas, whether it's family life, whether it's work life, whether it's relationships, it, it's, it can be all 
consuming. It can be overwhelming. No wonder anxiety is now this thing that we talk about as a major focal point of, of mental health. Anxiety affects 20 to 30% of Americans. Anxiety is the number one mental health struggle for women and the second for men after alcoholism. Uh, this one just blew my mind. A teenager today averages the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. America is the most anxious nation. And it's not even really close. Our anxiety levels are off the charts by any measure in history. We are anxious people. Whether it's just what we do and how we do it, whether it's just what life looks like in the 21st century, but somewhere we are the ones that struggle with this the most. The most affluent nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the world is the one that is the most anxious nation in the world too. However you feel about anxiety, perhaps your response might be, well, I was dealing fairly well with this until you said we're going to do a series on anxiety and now my anxiety is certainly going to increase and, and maybe I'm going to just increase it a notch further when I read you this passage because this passage has the potential to be in itself an anxiety-inducing thing. Read this with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a passage with all of these different wonderful elements to it. There's joy or rejoicing. There is this conversation around peace. There's the idea that the Lord is near. There's so much in there that I love. But if you read it as a command, maybe the one thing that stands out to you is this. Do not be anxious for anything. And if that's something I'm supposed to do, well, I'm already more anxious about it. Is this like a test that I have to pass? Is that what Paul has for us? You over there, you sitting in church, seats all over the world, you don't be anxious. Just stop it. Just leave it alone. Just let it go. Is that Paul's answer to this writer 2,000 years ago? Is that his big answer to the great American struggle with all of our anxiety, all of our wrestling? Just stop doing it. Is that really what he's saying? Well, before we say yes to that, and it's possible, we'll get to that in just a second, let's make sure when he says anxious, we're really talking about the same thing. few caveats before we step into talking about anxiety. And the first one is this. Anxiety is nothing to be ashamed of. And one of the things that the church has done really badly over the last maybe thousand years has, has been to shame people that are struggling with mental health. It's maybe the one last thing, last sickness that we blame the person for. And so when someone says that they're wrestling with that, we kind of treat them like they're less than. And, and what I hope for from this short series, just three weeks, is that maybe if you struggle and wrestle with anxiety, this is the start of a journey. And start of a journey that you can feel actually people are interested in you moving forward on and want to partner with you outside. We have support groups that are registering today in the foyer. We have groups of people that are gathering together. We have people that would love to come alongside you one-on-one. -on -one. So there's all of these different ways that we might help you in your journey if anxiety is a wrestling point. 
One of the ways we probably won't do that is with you sitting down with me every week, and that's sometimes what people ask for, and, and part of the reason we don't do that is because that's just not going to help you in the way that you think that it might, so occasionally people will come and say, will you do some counseling with me around anxiety, and usually I say, well, there's probably a group to join, or, or there's probably a class to attend, or there's probably someone who's really wise and gifted in that, um, but it, it's not me. Um, and so I'll always sit down with anyone that asks to sit down and have a conversation, but, but after that, there's probably a great journey with some gifted people that you might begin to take. Second caveat is this. I, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So I'm going to try and stick today to, to what's called spiritual advice around texts. We're going to read texts together, and we're going to ask God, how might you be speaking to us as a group of people? But my seminary degree came with two credit hours of psychology, which is just, just enough to make you really dangerous to people that you're trying to help. It's like getting, getting a heart operation from a guy that did human biology 101 or something like that. It's, it's not what anybody wants. But... Third caveat, we are going to wrestle with this text. What if this is a command? What if this is God saying, no, no, you've got to move on from this for your own good, perhaps? We're going to wrestle with the fact that we get to read Scripture and, and we get to let it speak to us. We don't always get to say whether we like it or not. Sometimes it can ask hard things of us, so we'll wrestle with that element too. On the surface, anxiety, right, it's a good thing. It, it keeps you safe at its base level. We've talked about this in different ways a couple of times since I've been here at South, but, but you have this physiology that, that, that works to keep you safe. You have a amygdala, which does your fight, flight, and freeze response. You get into a moment of danger, and, and your body knows what to do because of your brain. This morning when I was walking, I saw this fox, and it just froze when it saw me. And I, I thought, good, I'm intimidating to the fox. The fox is scared of me. Had it been a lion or something else, well, the response would probably have been flipped. But in that moment, its amygdala kicked in, and it did its fight, flight, or freeze. And then you have this prefrontal cortex that, well, it gets to at least a little bit control how you react to what your amygdala is telling you to do. You might phrase this another way. This is a big deal, is what your amygdala tells you. Your prefrontal cortex asks, is it really? You wake up in the middle of the night and you hear a bang and suddenly you find yourself starting to breathe a little faster. Your heart rate is elevated. You maybe sweat. If you could see your pupils, they're dilated. Your amygdala is functioning and saying there is danger. You need to respond. And then your prefrontal cortex gets to speak into that and say, well, hold on a second. It's windy outside. Maybe it's a trash can that just blew over. Maybe there's some reason for that noise, and I'm going to wait for some new information before I go into some kind of panic response. Somewhere your physiology is made to think through things like, is there danger, and how do I process that danger? That response is a good thing. It's kind of like your human body's smoke detector um, or smoke alarm. So, so this thing theoretically does the same thing as your amygdala. It takes in information and it responds accordingly. So if I do this, it won't work because it's broken, <laughs> which is fine. Sometimes your amygdala's broken too. And this thing is not in my house because it's broken and regularly responds incorrectly. I can be cooking and it just goes off randomly. I'm, I'm responsibly cooking bacon. And the thing tells me, no, I need to react and get all of my kids and loved ones and possessions out of the house. The, the, the theory is that your amygdala works as this thing 
works too. That is good. You have something like a smoke alarm and it needs to respond. It needs to process information and it needs to say fight, flight, or freeze. But then there's ways that that amygdala can start to respond in in maybe ways that aren't healthy. There's a difference between healthy anxiety and unhealthy anxiety. And and what happens when that process is firing so much where you can no longer function in everyday life? What happens when you've had an experience in your past that might be a big T trauma, something anybody would find traumatic? might be a small t trauma, something that you just found to be particularly traumatic and it still is reflected in your body. There's, there's ways that your body, your system can get out of whack and, and there's ways that medically and, and hormonally it can be out of whack too. What do you do then? And, and to go back to Paul's writing, this letter to this church in Philippi in 62 AD, 2,000 years ago, what does he mean, do not be anxious about anything? Am I supposed to try and rewire my circuitry? Am I supposed to not engage with that response? What does it mean to not be anxious? Is that really his word for us? Don't be anxious? The word anxious in the New Testament is this Greek word here, or or a a declension of it, mirimneo. It does mean don't be anxious to a degree. But maybe something a little bit more than that. Maybe there's a little bit more depth to that. At its core, it means this. Don't be divided into parts. Have you ever had someone use this expression, or perhaps you've used this expression? Something will happen, some event will occur, and you'll say, well, don't go to pieces over this. Don't go to pieces over this. Or you've gone to pieces over this. Or I went to pieces over this. That's some of where this expression is coming from. It's saying when you face situations... Don't let them tear you apart. Don't let them send you off into all sorts of different directions that are healthy. Paul's not talking about the physiological response, which is important and necessary. It's how you stay safe. But he is saying there's levels to which anxiety can hit us that are actually just unhealthy. And that's not what God has for us. It is don't be divided into parts. It seems that God is concerned not just about our holiness, but our wholeness too. I grew up in a faith tradition that said God was really interested in the first of these things. He was really concerned with how I lived and how I acted, that I did the right things. But I never got a sense that he was particularly concerned about whether I was a healthy human being. Here it seems that he is deeply concerned. Do not be anxious for anything, not just because it's a command, because that isn't the way you were made to live. Don't live like a divided person. Don't live going to pieces. God has more for you than that. He made you to be a whole person. There may be a journey to get there, but don't just stay as you are. Don't just stay in that place. And so I started to process this, started to wrestle with just what are you saying to us, Paul, and and what can we take away from this? What's a healthy journey forward? And and then I asked myself, how do I find that I end up being divided as a person? Where does anxiety begin to hit me, and and where do I struggle to say no to it? And, And I thought about this idea of wholeness or dividedness that Paul expresses, and I began to think about how I live in time. I don't just mean how I spend my time. I mean that time broadly is broken into these different elements. There's the past, which is kind of fixed. 
and not necessarily controllable. I can't go and change it. And then there's the future, which is really vague and and has so many different tangents. And then there's the present. And I started to think, "Ah, where does God want me to live? And where do I spend most of my time? Jesus said this, and we'll get to this passage more next week as we talk about the future. He said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, every day has enough trouble of its own. And it seems like his focal point for me is today, the present. And then I thought about where I spent most of my time, and I started to ask, is it in the present, or is it somewhere else? And let's look at that a little more. Time is this fascinating concept just in general. Augustine of Hippo said this, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. I'm comfortable with it. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. It's just hard to put a finger on. What do you mean by the word time? Or at least it was for Augustine, but then he didn't have the movie uh, Back to the Future to help him understand it, which we do. So like, we've got this, this great gift. It, it popularized many things. It gave us the DeLorean car, which I saw a picture of, I saw a driving down the road the other day, it was, it was there and it was glorious and then suddenly it took off into the air and then, no, it didn't really do that, that was, that was not, not, not what happened at all, but, but it gave us these different things, it gave us this, this car and it gave us this space-time continuum until at least some point in history, almost every nation had thought about time as cyclical. It didn't move from left to right. It wasn't just past, present, and future. It moved in a circle. It's really the Christian faith and modern history that has said, no, time moves from left to right. And and in this movie, I have lots of joys in remembering this this series of movies. It was the first uh, grown-up movies I was allowed to watch. And then the other day, I looked, and I was wearing the same clothes that Marty was wearing, which just shows fashion comes around in a circle. Um, but, But I also noticed this about this movie. Throughout these three movies, this central character who's living his life spends 18 minutes of film time in the present, and all of the rest of it in the past or in the future. He's a time traveler. It kind of comes with the territory. But then I've realized something about me, too. I probably spend about the same equivalent time in the present. And the rest of my mental time in the past or in the future. Mentally, metaphorically, I'm a time traveler just like him. All of my attention units go somewhere else. And if Jesus is serious when he says today has enough trouble for itself, that might just be a problem. Bill uh, Keenan in, in this little cute quote said this, yesterday's the past, tomorrow's the future, but today's a gift. That's why it's called the present. I tend to operate more in the past and in the future. I rarely maintain a focus on this gift that I've been told, that I've given, I've been given. And next week, we'll talk about what it is to operate primarily in the future. This week, I'd love us to think about how our anxiety is affected by living in the past. The writer William Faulkner said, the past is not dead. It's not even the past. There's so many ways that it jumps, us out, uh, jumps up and grabs us in everyday life. Maybe you've had this experience that I've had. You eat a particular type of food and it sends you instantly back into childhood. You catch hold of a particular smell and it reminds you of summer spent in a particular place. There's so many ways that life grabs us in an evocative sense and says, remember when 
this. Good or bad, the the past jumps out so often and grabs us. Marshall Proust kind of taps hold of this with this piece of language around just eating a cake with tea that he's drinking. No sooner had the warm liquid mixed with the crumbs touched my palate than a shudder ran through me and I stopped intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to me. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, something isolated, detached, and with no suggestion of its origin. The past can jump up and grab us in a good way, and it can also do the same in a negative way. Lisa Firestone says this, many present situations can trigger tensions from our past. What happens when we allow those things, those focal points from history, to grab us constantly, regularly? I would suggest this. When we are consumed by worst of moments, we end up living in the past. I'm not saying you shouldn't reflect back on your journey, reflect back on life. I'm not sure, saying that you shouldn't be thankful for so much of your past. I'm not even saying that you shouldn't remember some elements. But when it consumes us, when that's all we think about, when we're constantly going over old injuries, constantly going over ways that we've failed, ways that we've hurt, I actually think it ends up with us living in the past. And God never called us to live there. Some things that I say in my own mind sometimes look like this. What about the time you did blank? What about the time they did blank? You failed before at even God can't forgive blank. If only they hadn't, if only you hadn't blank. What happens if blank happens again? Everybody still remembers when blank. It's all blank's fault. I can never forgive blank. All of those are things that are rooted in our past, things that we perhaps hold on to dearly and deeply. There's a reason so many people, a good proportion of the population is terrified to go to school reunions. They still believe that little details about their life are remembered by everybody, moments of embarrassment, moments of humiliation. They believe people have held them stored up to to deliver cripplingly at this moment of reconnection, and yet it's mostly there in our minds. What happens when we're consumed by history, consumed by this thing that happened before? And if we are, how do you turn it off? That that replay system that seems to be somewhat built into us, how do you start to say no to it? How do you start to say, I'm not going to constantly hold all of these things from history. I'm going to allow them to be healed. I'm going to allow the replay to stop. And to, to help us understand that just a little bit, there was a character that I thought of, and I thought, wonder what it would look like to look at the way he deals with some of these things. The character Joseph has one of the most traumatic journeys of, of anyone in the Old Testament. It starts off really well, and you can follow his whole story in Genesis 37 through to Genesis 50, but we're just told Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. These were father's wives. He brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph's story starts off with lots of brothers. There's some kind of tension in their interactions, but it's all gonna kind of descend south from here. It's gonna get pretty murky pretty quick. Joseph has a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. 
He said to them, listen to this dream I've had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. It begins with just an everyday family encounter, brotherly rivalry, all of those different things. Joseph shares his first dream and it's received really poorly. And unlike a wise man, he would say, I'm not going to repeat the same mistake again. Well, of course he does. And his brothers say, we're getting rid of this guy. And the first plan is to kill him and pretend a wild animal ate him. The the second plan is that they're just going to throw him into a pit and leave him there to die, which doesn't seem like a better, like it doesn't seem like an evolution of the idea. It still seems a pretty mean thing to do to someone. He ends up in Egypt, but because of his faithfulness, ends up in a position of prosperity in Egypt, working for an important person. But then again, there's a trauma, there's a problem in in that situation. The, The man's wife wants to sleep with Joseph, and when he says no, she creates a situation where he ends up thrown in jail again. There's multiple ways that his story hits trauma after trauma after trauma, to a point that he ends up in prison for many years. In a moment of encounter, he's able to do something for an important person who will be released from jail, and he asks just one thing of this person. When you get out, would you remember me? And would you speak up for me? But this person doesn't either. This person forgets him too. This cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And so this character, Joseph, whose story starts in prominence and importance with all of this potential future for him, descends through trauma into a lowest point into a moment where if anybody had a right to recount history and talk about all the ways that God had failed them and all the ways that their story was unfair, Joseph is that person. There's so much of his story that is not his fault. Maybe there's elements that you could say, wow, Joseph, work on your social skills. All you have to do is have dreams and not share them with your brothers. But, but for the most part, the story is not his fault. It's not his actions that land him there. But now for two years, he sat in a prison cell with no particular hope of reprieve, no particular hope of escape. I've never sat in a physical prison cell, but I do know that there's been times when mentally I've been in a prison cell. There's some particular action that somebody has done, some way I've been treated, and what I've done is I've played that worst of over and over again in my mind. There's ways that I've made a decision that I've regretted, and again, same thing. I play it over and over again in my mind. For whatever reason, I seem wired to hold on to those things instead of to let them go, instead of to release them. I end up living in the past instead of in the present. And yet Joseph, he incredibly doesn't seem to do that. A couple of things about Joseph. Uh, Joseph seems to be physically captive, but he seems to stay emotionally free. Seems to not hold some of the bitter resentment that I seem to end up holding if I'm not really careful. And then he does something perhaps more incredible. Joseph manages to open pathways of forgiveness. If you and I find ourselves in some kind of mental prison, if you find ourselves constantly thinking through the past and all the ways that we've injured or have been injured, 
others, then ultimately we need something that restores us from or pulls us out of that. We need some way of escaping that. And it seems that pathways of forgiveness actually matter there. Joseph creates this possibility that relationships might be restored. When he finally gets out, we read, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. In, in my honesty, I would say in that moment, the thing that would be most on my mind would be revenge. I would think, I'm going to make these guys pay. They did this to me. Now's my opportunity to avenge myself. I'm going to take it out on them. And, and yet Joseph doesn't seem to desire that. There's this moment where he seems to kind of play with them a little bit. But, but all the time, this seems to be where the story is pointing. In 45 verse 15, we read, And he kissed his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. As someone who would say that there's moments, if I'm not careful, I can remember stories from childhood and remember relationships with people in my school community, and I can think through revenge scenarios of how I would, if I could go back, pay them back for what they did, or, or how I could fix the situation if I could go back in history. Joseph impresses me. And, and, and so it, it makes me ask the question, well, how does he do this? And, and I think he does it because of number three. Joseph is willing to see God present even in a traumatic past. And I know for some of you, you have trauma in the, the past that I can't even compare to, I can't relate to, I can't understand. There's been experiences that you've had, struggles that you've had that, that must lead to the question, where was God when that happened? Joseph has those stories too. And what I would suggest about Joseph is this, he's able to see God present there. Now, now, seeing God present doesn't get rid of the question, why did he let it happen? But it does seem to make a difference, at least for Joseph. In chapter 50, he says this, you intended it. All of these people that have, have, have formed against him, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Somewhere, Joseph is able to look at the past and see God present even when it was in its worst of. And that allows him to see God potentially present now and into the future. While I said that we were made to not live in the past and not made to live in the future, we were made to live in the present. Incredibly, God is able to dwell, it seems, in all of those different areas of time. We're told in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God operates in time in a different way to us. The message version of that says, Jesus doesn't change. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, he is always totally himself. Totally present, even when it appears like he isn't. In Psalm 139, this beautiful psalm that talks about God's interaction with us as human beings, we're told this, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. For Joseph... For David, in amongst life's 
winding turns, difficult moments, worst of situations, it seems that knowing God is present actually matters and actually makes a difference. And when we go back to Paul, who seems to just say in this fairly tough love kind of way, be anxious for nothing, just stop being anxious. When we go back, it's not really what he says to us at all. Look at what he says right before and right after he asks that we don't be anxious. He begins with this, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. In Christian theology, two things were important about God's nearness. Both, both, it was both chronological, God is near in terms of he's imminent, he's about to return, and, and it was also about presence, not physical presence, but, but metaphorical presence. When Jesus left his first disciples, he said to them, I am with you always. Even though I'm not here physically, I am here with you in spirit. There is something about his presence that is constant. And so when I take this idea that God is near and I put it next to do not be anxious about anything, suddenly I read it in a very different way. I even wrote you a different translation, which I'm calling Alex's somewhat sketchy, difficult translation. It goes like this, God is near, so you don't need to be anxious about anything. But you can in every moment of anxiety Come to him with your needs and your thanks. And when you choose that way of living, the peace of God will surprise you. The peace of God will surprise you. Those two statements aren't detached from each other. It's not God is near. Oh, and by the way, command, do not be anxious. It's all interconnected. God is near, and that allows you to not be anxious. Somewhere we need to know that whatever our past looked like, God was present there, and he's present now and present into the future. It doesn't take away the why. Why does he allow certain things to happen? That's a whole different conversation. But to know God is present for Joseph, for David, for Paul, for me, seems like it actually matters. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. Perhaps it's only when we know that God is near that we're enabled to do that other thing because how can you ever really pray to someone you believe to be distant and removed and uncaring in the situation? Seems like you need all three of them to come together. And so I have a few different practices as well as this gentle suggestion that if you're struggling with anxiety, this isn't going to be the thing that fixes it for you. Me saying these things is not the key to all of that past history. There are good conversations to have with wise people. But some practices as we come to this table, this communion, this remembrance that Jesus gave us in the midst of his greatest anxiety in the midst of his greatest suffering he gathered with his earliest followers around this table and said I'm doing this for you he would walk through a journey where his final words would be my God my God why have you forsaken me so that we would never be truly forsaken I'm going to suggest that perhaps this is a pathway towards health perhaps we need to notice anxiety and not try and just shout it down. I would suggest our American strategy has been just create more noise and anxiety will go away. But I wonder whether anxiety can't just shout louder in amongst our noise. Perhaps even in the traumatic past, look for signs of God's presence. Perhaps there's a conversation with him that enables you to ask honestly, 
to what you need. And then maybe according to this table, there's some brave pathways of forgiveness to take. Forgiveness of yourself and myself for all the missteps, all the ways that we have not been, all of our own worst ofs, and forgiveness of others who have created some of those moments of trauma and struggle. And then five, maybe it's time to invite others into your story. Maybe there's a person that you can trust, a group that you can engage with. Maybe there's an invite for someone to journey with you because I would suggest when we think about anxiety, when we think about overcoming trauma, when we think about learning what it is to be able to say, the Lord is near. You do not need to be anxious about anything. I would suggest you don't need to take that journey alone. But only you can choose to begin it. And only I can choose to begin it. You needn't journey alone. But only you can choose to begin. One of my common experiences of pastoring over however many years has been this. Regularly, I meet so many people would say they're stuck in the past. There's this thing that happened and I just can't escape it. It seems with Jesus present, all things are possible. So as we come to this table, we come to a table that is specifically linked to that second idea. This table was designed to be a table of God's presence. We come and we remember That's what he asked us to do. Remember the sacrifice I made. We are an unusual people. In the midst of people that forget, we are a people that choose to remember someone who 2,000 years ago gave his life for us. And perhaps that story is new to you, and that's okay. It's a strange story, but a wonderful one. The idea that God as man came to give his life for us is what this table is all about and it's open to anyone who takes hold of that idea and says I believe in that may not have all of the answers but I believe that Jesus for us came and gave his life and it's a table that he is particularly present at and so we bring all of our trauma and all of our past stories and have all of our unanswered questions and all of our uncertainty and all of our anger, and all of the ways that life wasn't fair. And we bring them into the present. And we say, God, you are near. I do not need to be anxious about anything. But this is what I need from you. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. As Aaron leads us, I'm going to invite you to come. And for some of you, that might mean coming to the side and receiving prayer. For some of you, it might mean coming and kneeling for a moment at the front. Together we'll come and we'll take the elements, the bread and the wine. And I'd invite you to take it back to your seat and to take the bread whenever you are ready. And together we'll come back and take the wine. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. And taking bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. And taking the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, 
Do this in remembrance of me. We come and we remember. And as we come with that idea, we remember that God does not forget. He remembers. He remembers us in our worst moments. He knows us in our best moments. He is present. For a second, I invite you to close your eyes. Notice the ways that anxiety from your past jumps up and grabs you. Perhaps it's a person. One particular name jumps to mind. Perhaps it's a building. Maybe even a church. A place of work. A school. Whatever you need to hold, just hold it for a second. And choose to take a step towards forgiveness. Choose to step out of the past and into the present. God, as we come with all of our anxiety, we come to your table that is enough. Thank you that you are present here in a real way. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.